Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Bible in a Year reading plan. We also have PDFs available on our website, grove.church. And if you have questions along the way, along listening to us here while we discuss each uh, each week, or as you're reading along in the reading plan, we'd love to take time to field some of those questions. Uh, you can send us those questions in two ways. One, either an email to info at grove.church church and just say, hey, Evan and Aaron, we've got a question. Or you can direct message our Grove Church Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State, and you can direct message us there. We see those questions as well. So we look forward to today. We actually have two questions we're going to take time to answer at the end of our podcast. So uh, stay tuned for that one. So today we are talking about uh, Job's friends. So a character study, uh, but not of one character. We'll be studying of multiple ca- we'll characters. We'll be studying four characters. Today. We just want to be really ambitious today, so we're just going to take on going to go more than one this time. We're going to go crazy. Uh, so re- for resources, um, as always, I'm, I like the ESV Study Bible. Aaron likes the CSB. He speaks yes, truth Bible. Sir. Uh, That's the name of the Bible, He Speaks Truth. Not that I speak truth, but I try to speak truth. Yeah, we we do our best to speak truth around here. Uh, And then as far as resources today, The Essence of the Old Testament, a survey by Ed Hinson and Gary Yates. Um, and then, so there's just a lot like of 18 Job books. No, I'm just kidding. So there's a lot. Of, so I've been, I've been going through a bunch of commentaries over the last year. So I'm just kind of listing those off for you. So if, if you, if you think to yourself, boy, I'd like to study Job, then here's, here's the, some really great books for you. Yeah. So there's Job. Also, they all have the same name. So it's Job by Roy Zuck. Also, there's Job by Robert Alden. And if you don't like that one, there's Job by Francis Anderson. And finally, uh, if you don't like any of those three, there's Job colon. The Wisdom of the Cross by Chris Ash. So he gives it a subtitle on his. So it's not just... Is that from the Preaching the Word series? That is, Yeah, that's the okay. one from Preaching the Word. Oh. So they're really good. Uh, the I think the Anderson one was written first in like the 70s. The Zuck one was written, I think, right afterward because he references the Anderson commentary a lot. And then Robert Alden is like in the 90s. And then the Chris Ash one is from like, I think the 2010s or yeah, the early it's, 2000s. It's more recent yeah. in the last decade or so. So there you go. Uh, and then finally, for one of our questions, spoilers, uh, but it's about numbers. So we also have the preaching the word commentary for numbers, mm-hmm. um, which Aaron is a big proponent of the preaching the word. I yeah. only have the Job one. Yeah, I've got a lot of these ones. Um, but I really like the Job one, so I probably will invest in some other. The reason why I like them, uh, it's written by pastors for pastors. Uh, so as a uh, pastor who is the chief editor, the chief oversight, his name's Kent Hughes, um, and he writes it specifically for pastors. But the way that he writes, I, I've actually used it as a devotional where I've studied books of the Bible, and this is... We've in different podcasts, you'll hear different things that we have said, uh, but that's kind of the, what I use it for. And so I really enjoy the, the, this, this, uh, commentary series. So yeah. I really want to get to, mm-hmm. um, so I'm, I've calculated it out. I'm four weeks away from finishing my study of Job. Wow. So now it's like light at the end of the tunnel, bro. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's all with all the books, there's like just a pinch of pages at the end that I'm going through, but uh, I want to do like a gospel next because I've spent yeah. so much time in just like pre- pre-Christ that it'd be fun to do. Like maybe yeah. I'll do John or something. Did you take any gospel classes in college? Not, not specific gospel. Okay. I think I took Acts, which is kind of interesting, but I don't think I did it's any It's a good gospels. book too. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, no, no, uh, no shade thrown on Acts. Acts is okay. It's, it's only the launch of the church. Just, you know, the Holy Spirit really empowering the <laughs> disciples to make other disciples. All right. Enough of, enough of commentary talk. Uh, so today we're talking about Job's friends. Uh, and th- I guess the first question would be, well, why? Why would we talk about uh, Job's friends? And I think... The mistake that we make when we talk about and read Job is it kind of goes something like this, right? Once upon a time, there's a man named Job. Job was blameless and upright before God. Um, and then the Satan came in. He accused Job of saying, you the know. Satan, sorry, yeah, in, the Satan. Sorry, the Satan. In Job, he is the Satan. He is not Satan. So, and then... I was, it's funny, me and, me and uh, Brett, my brother, who uh, is the host of his own podcast, the Echo Use podcast. So if you're, I mean, shout out to him, I suppose. Oh, shout outs. And then in. He better give us a shout out then. In May, um, he's coming up for my sister's wedding. So I think we're going to have him on. We'll have so a we'll guest have, appearance. We'll have a guest. By the Westerfield brothers first and ever, Aaron. Our first ever guest speaker. Anyway, me and Brett were talking about it and we were talking about how, what, one of the interesting things is we have taken titles and and made them names. So for instance, Satan is not his name. It's the Satan, the accuser is his title in in scripture. And then with God, God is not his name. God is a title. It is Yahweh who is the one true God. So it's just kind of interesting. Not that like, 
there's anything wrong, I guess, with recognizing Dude, you just went titles. deep right there. Went deep. So All because I was laughing at you for saying the Satan. If you'll, if you'll notice the last few months, because um, Brett brought this up, that's something he's trying to do. And I was like, oh, that's actually really smart. So I, I tried to intentionally say Yahweh more hmm. um, because that's the name that God revealed to us, right? That's the name he said, this is what I want to be called. So it's Yahweh who is God, as opposed to hmm. just saying God. Now, it's not perfect, but I've, I've, been, I've been trying to do that more recently. So interesting. <laughs> anyway... Um, but the same, I haven't picked up on it, so well, yeah, I just, it shows it, you how many conversations we've had about God. I well, mean, Yahweh. It's, yeah, it's just one of those things. Uh, but anyway, so the Satan comes in, he accuses Job, he says, you know, of course, Job serves you. Uh, you've given him everything he could ever want. And then Yahweh is like, well, or in, in this instance, actually, it's God, because he's not called Yahweh in Job, because his name hasn't been revealed yet. It's true. Boom. Uh, I think it's Adonai is the big one. I could be wrong, though. could be Elohim. Anyway, so God, God says, all right, you're on, makes a bet, uh, and then... Horrible things happen to Job. All of his things get stolen. Uh, his children die. And then his friends come and his friends accuse him, but Job doesn't do anything wrong. And then at the end, God comes up and he says, uh, you know, Job is right. You friends are wrong. And he sends them away and then he blesses Job. Like that's kind of how we tell the story of Job. Yeah. Um, but if you'll notice what we do there is we take the first few chapters of narrative and the last chapter of narrative, and we skip over the meat of the book, which yeah. is like these poetic dialogues. And so, I think and I think we do that because it's often it, it, it takes a lot of mental capacity and energy to really stay engaged with those poetic things. Um, oh yeah, I, and and I think it's interesting because uh, just just to say this for a moment, I think reading scripture is laborious at times, but it's necessary. Um, and we have to be able to when we catch ourselves checking out and glossing over to stop re-engage and process what we're reading because it's significant. And so, um, but yeah, it's, it's hard poetry. I, I can't keep up with the poetry. And so I have to stop, slow down and read, um, to really begin to understand what, what scripture is saying. So yeah, with Job, I mean, I don't, there's very few people who can actually like read the poetry just straight up. Cause like, I'm like living in commentaries and study Bibles and stuff like that to be like, Oh, that's a great connection because the, they, they really do help because you yeah, get people makes who, really good sense. Yeah. Yeah. You get people who have studied biblical poetry and are fluent in ancient Hebrew. They're great because yeah. they can point out all of the little intricacies that are the going nuances, on. the like even the sarcastic moment. Like it's just, it's really interesting and really fun yep. to be a part of. To um, read it. So anyway, yeah. But so what happens is we take a really simplistic view of what's actually happening in the book and the questions that are being raised. Um, and this is one thing that I get frustrated is the wrong word. Um, but Job is not a book about why bad things happen to good people. Um, because if it is, the conclusion would be every time that something bad happens to a righteous person, it's because God and Satan made a bet, yeah. which is like, it's obviously not true. So um, what the book is really about is what happens when your world gets flipped upside down and God is silent about it. It's, it's really a book about Job wrestling through not understanding what's happening and also wrestling with the fact that God is seemingly silent about yeah. it. So that is what the book is about. Um, and then within the book, we, we find a total of five, I'll call them major human characters, like Job's wife is in there, and then some of the servants have lines, but major human characters means they say more than a couple sentences throughout the book. So these would be Job uh, primarily. And then after that, it would be his friends who are Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and then later on, Elihu. Some um, young punk kid shows up. Some young... Just kidding. Yeah. Well... He is younger, though, for sure, but... We'll get to Elihu. Uh, he's, he's a really... He's really interesting. Uh, so, anyways, but we can be tempted to view... And we can be tempted not to view any of these friends as differently, because we kind of just lump them all together. Of like, And then Job's friends accused him, but then Job stood up to it, right? Well, all of these friends have really different personalities. And that's one of the most... That's one of my favorite things about studying the book this... Uh, these last, I guess, year and a half or however long it's been. Um, it... All of the friends are so different and they reveal different ways in which we can stray from the truth. Some of them subtly and some of them like, oh, wow, you're really far off. And so that's where I think it's good to read. And then also as we're reading through Job in the Bible reading plan, it's nice to be able to know like when this friend is speaking, oh, this is kind of the personality I have in my head mm -hmm. of what they do. So, so it'd be good to stop for a moment, grab a piece of paper and jot down some simple notes and put it in the book of Job in your Bible. Yeah. And I think we're simple reminders. Because I think we're starting it at the end of this week. This drops Sunday. And I think if I remember looking at the plan, right, we start Job on like Friday or something like that. Yeah. But anyway. So yeah, I, I would say grab, literally just grab a little post-it note. And as we're working through these, write down the names of the friends and put little, a little, a little something about who they are and where they're coming from, because I think that's going to enhance the conversations that are happening. So yep. uh, just a little tidbit for you. Okay. So 
Let's start off with a couple things that all of the friends have in common, uh, or at least most of the friends. Uh, Elihu is kind of on his own on some of these things. Yeah, Elihu, we're going to save him for last because he, again, he doesn't come until the end almost. Right. And, and so it's, it's you have these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zopar, who come first. And their three almost together is what it feels like. So um, we'll hit them first. I just realized I put a, I had a typo in there. It's Zophar, not Zophar. Zophar. I know. That's, I just, I, as soon as I said Zophar, I'm like, that's not the right name. I was like, that's my fault. Gang, uh, that wasn't Aaron's fault. I wrote down the wrong name. Th- thanks for falling on the sword. <laughs> All right. So anyways, uh, so Job's friends are just that. They're his true friends. Uh, we need to remember that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar came to Job when he was at his lowest and sat and mourned with him. So this is a, this is a verse that very rarely gets deal. talked about. Yeah. So in Job 2, 11 through 13... It says, now when Job's three friends heard of the evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shulite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come and show sympathy and comfort for him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Which that so, imagery is powerful. Yeah. So, and, and I think because so often we, we, we look at the friends and we're like, these guys were never Job's friends. Like they're celebrating the fact that they've been jealous of like, like, no, dude, like it is intense friendship to just go and mourn with someone yeah. for seven days and seven nights. And it's, it's not like they're not saying a word because they're mean to him. They're not saying a word because there's sometimes there's just things you can't say and just being there for a friend in grief. So, And I, I love the model that they show us even today in, in the midst of all the grief that goes on in the world as we live in and the world we live in right now. They model for us healthy friendship right. in the midst of suffering and tragedy. And just, I mean, for seven, and I'm not saying you should go sit by your friends who are suffering for seven days. But I'm saying you go by your friends and be present because the power of presence is more important. We hear that all the time. But I just love the model because we don't, again, we don't get to oftentimes see that because our mentality shifts to these three friends as being total jerks to Job in the midst of his tragedy. So moving forward, uh, they all, with the possible exception of Elihu, again, Elihu's kind of on his own for some of these things, uh, but they also share in believing what I call the great lie of the book. And essentially it's that uh, morality is entirely connected with circumstance. So Satan believes that Job only serves God because of good things. Uh, so in other words, that Job's, the reason Job is moral is entirely because of his circumstances. Uh, the three friends believe that because suffering has come onto Job, it must be an indicator of sin in his life. So in other words, they also believe what Satan believes. They just believe it in kind of the flip side. Mm-hmm. So that all goes on. They're all operating under the assumption uh, that there's a disconnect between Job's claims of innocence and his present suffering. Uh, but the other important thing to recognize is Job is also operating under that assumption. Because um, a lot of times we think when we read the book of Job, we think of Job as having like this deep understanding of what God is doing and the friends don't. Well, no, they all don't understand what God is doing because mm-hmm. Job also thinks that because he's lived a righteous life, he doesn't deserve the sufferings that have yep. come. And that's his that's his stance as well. So they're all- And it's our stance. Right. <laughs> we wrestle with the same thing. God, have I not been good for you? Um, no, it's true. So they, they all operate under that assumption. Um, and then finally, this is something uh, just recently I was thinking about. This is a little bit nerdy, but I just want, I want to dive into it a little bit. Uh, Job really almost perfectly mirrors um, ancient Greek tragedies and later on like Shakespearean tragedies. Um, but and, was written well before right. any of them. Um, but what's interesting is if you – so t- if you take all of the scenes involving God out of the, out of the book, here's the story, right? There's a wealthy man. Uh, and everything is going right, and then all of a sudden things start to go terribly wrong. And when you look at the the Shakespearean um, tragedies in particular, but also it's in the Greek ones too, with like, they all have fatal flaws, right? Mm-hmm. So like with Othello, it's that he's hot-headed. With Hamlet, it's like the opposite, where he just like can't make up his mind to do anything. With Romeo and Juliet, it's that they're young, uh, and and it's it's kind of a, it's a story about just kind of the... Um, I can't think of the word in terms of the stupidity of youth, I guess, is what I'm going to have to say. But I can't think of the word I'm actually thinking. Um, but it's similar to like the graduate. The ignorance. Ignorance. Of youth. Yeah, I can't think of the word. But anyway, so they all have these fatal flaws and things keep getting worse. And what ultimately ends in that character's demise is the fact that they they don't grow. Mm-hmm. So in comedies or in movies, or not movies, in stories where things go well, the reason they go well is because the character experiences growth. They go through a character arc. In tragedies, they don't go through character arcs. So they the reason they fail is because this fatal flaw they have um, never gets corrected. 
taking God out of the equation, Job could very easily be a story about a man who refuses to repent. And that's his fatal flaw. His fatal flaw, Job's fatal flaw could be um, that he has this secret sin in his life, he's refusing to repent of it, and his friends are desperately trying to get him uh, to do it. So, and again, that's not what happened because yeah. we know that Job didn't have this fatal flaw, um, that it's, there's something greater going on and God eventually reveals that. So the friends are wrong mm -hmm. to do what they do, but to view it from their perspective, they think they're right. Yeah. And they think they're trying to protect their friend from ultimately his own demise. And yep. that could very easily be the story as well. So that's kind of what I want to talk about. So again, Job's friends are wrong and I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat yeah, yeah. that. Uh, but I do think we, we misunderstand the friends a lot yeah, because we, we just immediately bury them. So with that being said, let's get into the friends. So each of them are uh, kind of different. I like it. So Eliphaz is the first to speak. Um, it could be Eliphaz as well, but I've been saying Eliphaz for a long time. So that's just what I'm going to go with. We'll say Eliphaz. Like, I could be. I'll concur with you. I could be totally wrong though. Uh, and I call him uh, the good man who was wrong. So Eliphaz is the friend. Um, he's, the mo he's most obviously of the first three friends, the one who seems to most uh, genuinely care for Job. Um, and yet he eventually joins in the same attacks of the other two friends. And so what we'll see is as, and this is very real, um, it's very real to conversations that we have in, in real life, right? As time goes on, Job gets more and more exasperated with his friends and the friends get more and more exasperated with Job. Mm -hmm. And so they, they start to, it's really cutting words uh, the further on that we go. Um, but in the beginning, um, Eliphaz is incredibly gracious with Job. Um, it's also possible, and this is something I think I read in the Chris Ash commentary, but I actually kind of just choose to believe this, even though it's very open-handed and there's not really evidence one way or the other. Um, but it's possible that Eliphaz is the same Eliphaz who is listed as a son of Esau. Um, this would, and he, so he's from the same general region. Um, and this would actually make sense for when Job takes place, because it would take place, if that's the case and that's who this Eliphaz is, that means it would take place about the time when Jacob and his family leave for Egypt hmm. uh, to escape famine. And so Job is just another one of the, the God-fearers, we'll tell them, and then Eliphaz being connected with Esau, whose father was Isaac, would also obviously have a deep understanding of who God is. Yeah. So kind of, kind of interesting. Yeah, it's interesting for sure. I remember we were talking about this when you were first working through the study and, and different things. And and it was it was really interesting, really intriguing to see just the, even that simple connection right. um, through that. Whether it's accurate or not, I don't know if we'll ever really know, um, but it is intriguing to see some connections and some pieces. Right. So yeah, very open-handed. It could very easily not be true. I just kind of like to think it's true. So that's just where, that's just where I'm at. Yeah. But. Cause selfishly is kind of a fun thought to think it's true. Yeah. It's kind of like the, um, believing that, uh, um, Barnabas is the rich young ruler. There's like a little bit of evidence of that, but not really. Uh, but it's kind of, I don't fun. know if I've ever heard that. Really? That's a different thought, but anyway, anyways. Yeah. So one of those things, uh, so his introduction shows great respect for Job before he launches into his advice. So in Job 22, four through 11, this is Eliphaz, um, first speaking here, uh, Hold on, this hold the phone. There we go. I put him in the wrong order. All right, in Job 4, 1 through 9, this is what he says. Uh, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made him the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember who that was innocent ever perished or were, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. So Eliphaz starts off with basically saying like, and this is right after Job laments. And he says, you know, I don't want, I wish I was never born. And Eliphaz kind of jumps in and he says, hey, I would like to let, I'd like to speak. I'd like to venture a word with you. And he even tells Job, like, Job, you've been an incredible man. Yeah. Like, you've helped so many people. All these things are great. You've helped them all through suffering. But now suffering has come for you. And you have to know, Job, this is the only reason suffering would come. So he's wrong on that. This yeah, is not sure. the only reason suffering would come. But you kind of see his But tone. in his human mindset, that's all that he can justify. Right. Why would something bad happen to you? And there's got to be a reason for it. And I think that's even indicative of our human tendencies is we always have to have a justification of why something's happening. Mm -hmm. And we we can't always bank on the fact that there is a very known reason or we'll come to know the reason at the end of the day. 
I mean, because we look through the story of Job and through the story of scripture, there's sometimes an alternative reality. Um, so, but yeah, it's, I mean, the hope is that as you're hearing something, you can relate more personally to some of the humanity of these individuals because right. it, they are straight human. And and these three friends' heartbeat is not to come and criticize and take advantage and make fun of Job while he's down, but they really have a, a heart and a desire to help re- reconcile and help him come to the other side of repentance or whatever. So, yeah. Um, and like we said, over the course of it, uh, the story, Eliphaz loses his patience with Job. Um, in his last, <laughs> in his last speech to him, he says, "Is it for fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquity." So here he's actually straight up accusing Job of things. For you have exacted pledges before your brothers for nothing and stripped naked their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man uh, with power possessed the land and favored. Uh, and if the favored man lives there, I, I won't keep going with that. But basically, he he goes from being very respectful to Job to straight up accusing him of like, no, you're a sinner and here's how. So, And it's interesting because at first he starts off the conversation with, you have been a righteous, good man. Right. And But no, you're not righteous. Here's the reality. Um, and maybe it's it's his own wrestling, but it, it is interesting to see one on one hand when he's first starting off, he's very uh, clear about what Job has brought to the table and to those around him. And then in his accusation or in his shift in judgment, it's now, here's where you failed miserably. And I think it's, so with, with Eliphaz, I think he's, he's a cautionary tale of, of what can happen to someone with the best intentions. Um, so Eliphaz, he wants to be a good friend to Job. However, he's wrong and he can't accept that he's wrong. Hmm. And that leads him to, um, uh, to saying terrible things. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where, like I said, I think Eliphaz, the most obviously of the friends, cares about Job. He wants to see him turn around and repent. But when Job keeps telling him that there's nothing in my life, Eliphaz refuses to believe him. And eventually it becomes very vindictive towards Job. And he's rebuked along with the other friends as well. So, or with the uh, the first three friends, he's in that group. So that's his right. Well, so that was Eliphaz, the good man who was wrong. The good man who was wrong. We'll go next to Bildad. I call him the smart man without wisdom. And so, um, and all of these, it's funny because like all of these characters are like convicting for me in different ways. Cause like you can think of like with Eliphaz, like, well, where in my life have I had the best intentions, but I refuse to like either um, believe friends or refuse to see where God is prompting me. And with, um, you know, there's the old saying, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? This mm-hmm. whole idea of, uh, or the way um, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Yeah. Like sometimes you have to look at a power above you and then Bildad, the smart man without wisdom. Uh, he's the next friend of Job's to speak. We also know that they speak in order of age. So Eliphaz is the oldest, Bildad is the next oldest, Zophar is next. And then Elihu waits for all of them to finish completely speaking. And yeah. then he speaks. Cause he's the youngest. Yep. And that's cultural. That's um, age has authority. They have priority and, 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 presence. Right. That's the right word. So that, I mean, we see that even throughout ancient history. We see that throughout biblical history. Um, even the story of Jesus uh, having a woman caught in the act of adultery brought before him says that him who's us and the oldest first is the one to drop the stone and walk away. Right. It's and, then, very, and then everyone else follows suit. Um, it's a very ancient Semitic thing mm-hmm. to, to go it's a in big order deal. of age. Yep. Um, so he is less gracious than Eliphaz, although he's certainly not the least gracious because we'll we'll get to Zophar. He's Zophar, is, Zophar is a bit of a... But uh, anyway, uh, he also makes uh, many of his appeals to the wisdom of the past. Um, so Bildad appears to be a well-educated man, or at least he's someone who's well aware of, of the philosophies of his ancestors. So when you go... Um, when you go through and you read about Bildad, it comes up a lot where he'll just kind of reference... Um, as the ancient, as our fathers tell us, or as, you know, all these different things. So he's, and it's funny because uh, I didn't say it in the Eliphaz part, but Eliphaz is more of a mystic a little bit. Um, like he hmm. talks about this dream that he had and he's like, Job, like, I think God's revealing truth. Here's this dream I had. And then in the next section, Bildad, um, he never references any, like God directly speaking to him, but it's very much about just kind of what has been written. Interesting. Um, but yeah, so in, in his first speech, he says, for inquire, please by bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. Uh, for we are are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days are on earth or as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you the and utter words of their understanding? So he's saying there, don't just think about our wisdom, look into the past wisdom as, as well. Uh, and then Bildad ultimately arrives at the same conclusion of Eliphaz and Zophar. Uh, Job must be hiding sin and is being punished for it. Um, he also gets more and more harsh as time goes on. It just happens to all the friends. Uh, and then you get a sense while reading 
um, that as the conversations continues, both Job and the friends become more and more exasperated. So we already talked about that, but mm-hmm. that's kind of what happens. So Bildad, he's kind of this middle ground between Eliphaz and Zophar. He's not like the complete jerk that Zophar is, um, but he's also not nearly as gracious as Eliphaz is. And then you get this idea of, yeah, you know, like when you're reading the Bildad passages, just kind of think of someone who um, maybe showed up with like his stack of philosophy books. Not that this actually happened in real life, but he's clearly very yeah, aware. Very well read. Exactly. Of all this ancient uh, wisdom. That's what makes him a smart man without wisdom. Uh, yep. So that's Bildad, the smart man without wisdom. Next up, we have Zophar. Um, the, I call him the brash <laughs> man who knew he was right. Um, that's so awesome. he's incredibly brash, um, but he's also like, he's he won't be moved off his opinion for everything. And he kind of goes in guns blazing and never tones it, never tones it down. Whereas with Eliphaz and Bildad, they both kind of, it ramps up as they get exasperated so far, just from the beginning, like, um, okay. So I, his opening salvo to Job is really all about how Job should stop complaining because he actually deserves much worse. So he's like, you know what, Job, <laughs> like your stuff got stolen and your family's Big deal. Your kids are all dead. You deserve so much worse. Like he just doesn't have any tact at all. Um, and so in Zophar's first speech, it, he says, should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man be a uh, man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men when you mock, shall no one shame you? So he's, I mean, he's just going after him. Uh, for you say, my doctrine is pure and I am cleaning God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So basically he's saying like, Job, you keep saying you want God to answer you. I hope he does because he's going to tell you how wrong you are. And how, <laughs> like, that's kind of his shtick. Um, and so uh, here's an interesting note though. He is, Zophar is the only friend who is silenced by Job. Um, so there's three hmm. cycles. So it's Eliphaz speaks, Job replies, Bildad speaks, Job replies, Zophar speaks, Job replies, and then Eliphaz speaks again. And that's that's one cycle. So there's three of those cycles where each of the friends speak and then Job replies to them. In the third cycle, Eliphaz speaks, Job replies, Bildad speaks, Job, Job replies, and then uh, Zophar doesn't speak. And what's interesting is when you look at the... Uh, um, when you look at what's going on before the dialogue section um, between Job and Zophar in their second speech, it has to do with the wicked suffering. So in Zophar's second speech, he makes the point that the wicked always suffer. He's saying, you know, hmm. Job, when you look out into the world and you see people suffering, they're all wicked. And the people who are wicked before God and they don't worship him, they all suffer. And then Job's reply to Zophar is basically like, what are you talking about? Like, look in the world. And he's he's essentially saying like, you can see wicked the wicked prospering everywhere. And like, maybe it doesn't last forever, but like, there's people who cheat their way to the top. There's people mm-hmm. who oppress people and they're at the top. There's wicked kings. Like, he's kind, he kind of takes Zophar to task. Um, and then it seems as though after that, Zophar has nothing else to say. Yeah. He's, he gets shut up. Yeah. So Eliphaz and Bildad both make three speeches. Zophar only makes two. Um, take some, that, Zophar. Take that. Some commentators try and like <clears throat> find a spot where Zophar's speech maybe got <laughs> hidden. I don't really buy into it, but yeah. I mean, you, you could, like there's, there's a spot where like. Yeah. There's, there's always, there's always an opportunity to try and create something, but, um, sometimes it, you just got to let it ride. Exactly. It is interesting to me as I, as you kind of work through these guys, you'll see, because they speak based upon age, you see the different layers of maturity as well. Yeah, that's true. You see Eliaphaz, who's very much gracious and loving and caring. Um, but then he he kind of comes around to the end of this other side where he's they're all accusing the same boat. We already said that. But you see this caring uh, concern from Eliaphaz to begin with. You see this middle ground with Bildad where he, he speaks more from uh, knowledge and um, understanding and insight um, the wisdom is lacking, obviously, because of the tact, and he he speaks more from a head spot than it is a heart spot. But there is this progressive journey that as as and I have found that as you grow and mature and develop, you actually become more gracious and soft towards people most of the time. And then there's the other side of it where I've seen different generations who are much older than me become more hard, become more rigid, and become more uh, critical of of individuals and people and places depending on the circumstances. But it's interesting to watch this progression between the, the three, even four, because we're going to get into Elihu in a minute. Right. Uh, but you just see this progression of age. 
Um, and I, and I look back on my own life, 37 years old. Now I see in my youth, I was very brash and I thought I knew everything and I could figure it out. Um, and, and the world humbled me, you know, and experience in life humbled me getting married humbled me, <laughs> like um, <laughs> having kids revealed so much more about you know, my weaknesses and my flaws. So you, you see this progression as well in the, in the three to four individuals. Right. Well, like I'm 28. And if you went back in time and grabbed like current me and then 21 year old me, and then like 16 year old me, like I would be so embarrassed by what 21 and like 16 year old me would say. Or Listen, do. I knew you at 21. And I was, and you, I you was, were a great guy. I was a Zophar. <laughs> but yes, you, you definitely were. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so moving, moving forward, um, finally I call Elihu, uh, the angry man who was right. <laughs> and he's the youngest. Yep. So if, if Zophar is the brash man who thought he was right or knew he was right, uh, Elihu is, well, we can, I can change the word to brash, the brash man who actually was right. Yeah. No, I um, like angry man who was right better. There, there you go. Uh, so finally, after all of the friends and Job had said their piece, we get introduced to the final character in the book. He's not the final character to speak, but he's the final one yes. that we're introduced to. Uh, so in Job 32, one through five, it says, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. So after you remember the cycles are happening, Bildad speaks, Job replies. And then it seems like he actually gives a spot for Zophar to like, like, Hey, Zophar, you got anything to say? Zophar doesn't, he declines to speak. And so then Job goes on this really long speech where he, uh, it's where we get the wisdom poem, which is kind of like, it seems like it's just thrown in there randomly. Um, it could also, like, if you were making it a play, it makes sense as kind of like something where the characters fade into the background and the chorus comes up and sings this thing and then they come back. But it goes there. And then Job sums up his uh, his defense. Basically says, mm-hmm. here's, what my, here's what my life was. Here's what's happened to me. Here's why I don't deserve it. And then after this, Elihu speaks. So it says, then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the boozite of the family of Ram, uh, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Yeah. So this, <laughs> He's this, a little bit mad, guys. This phrase, burned with anger, um, there's two things that really mark Elihu. The fact that he burned with anger and the fact that like he talks a lot. So Elihu, that's youth. Yeah, he makes. Let's just be honest. It's true. Um, so he he is brash um, in this, and I, I want to be really careful. So all right, so let's get into this really quick. So Elihu is one of the most controversial characters in the book. Um, there is not a consensus among commentators as to whether or not Elihu was right. Um, some holding that he's a pompous blowhard who attacks Job <laughs> unjustly. <laughs> Uh, and others holding that he is a John the Baptist-like character preparing the way for God's answer to Job. Um, so I tend to land in the latter camp where I think he's right. Um, and I think he his, um, his purpose in the book is to kind of prep Job yeah. for God's hmm. answer to him. But he's not a perfect man. Uh, I think he is very brash. I think he doesn't have a ton of tact. Um, so ultimately, I think what he's saying is right. Um, but there's points where I would have, I would take issue with kind of how Elihu says it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, not 21 year old Evan. Exactly. But I'm just 28 year old me. <laughs> 28 year old issues. Evan would take, take issue. Um, okay. So Elihu's main point is that Job has sinned, but not in the way that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have said. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar all think that, well, because you're suffering, this obviously means that you have sinned. This obviously means that you have sinned in your life, that you're not um, confessing to God, that you're holding on to, and God is punishing you for it. Um, Bill or Elihu says that Job, you have sinned, um, but you, his evidence for that is not that he's suffering. His evidence is what Job has actually said. So yeah. if you read the Elihu speeches, what's really interesting is the other speeches all say. They're, they're, they say, this is what's happening to you, therefore you have sinned. Elihu's speeches go in the um, – so there's a first speech that is made to the friends. But then after that, Elihu's speeches to Job all follow the structure of quoting Job and then saying why Job is wrong. So he's actually using evidence from the book um, to make his, uh, um, his accusations against Job. So mm-hmm. that's one of the interesting things. And then it, you can read from the introduction, but he, he says it clearly – Uh, in his speeches as well, that he burns with anger at Job because throughout the book, what we see is that Job wants to justify himself, but he never really takes the tact 
that God could possibly and be in the right for allowing to ha- happen what has happened to Job, if mm-hmm. that makes sense if you're following. So Job's defense is half true. Yeah. On the one hand, it is true because we know from the beginning that Job is a righteous man who's upright and blameless before God. It doesn't mean he's perfect, but it means that he is certainly not being punished for sin. That is yeah. not what's happening when he's suffering. Um, but Job neglects to really lay out that God could be he could be right yeah. for allowing this to happen. And there's incredible faith moments of Job, because I also don't want to bury Job here either. Because yeah, yeah. like the, the, one, of, one of the best passages, I think in almost all of scripture, is when Job says, even though he slayed me, yet will I serve him, which is, which yeah. is incredible. Um, and there's one... Also, don't we also get the same, you give and take away? Isn't the same thought that I comes think from Job? Too, I yeah. think it comes from Job. Um, and it's in a song that was back in my day, you know, but there was this line that you just sing, he gives and takes away referring to the Lord. But it was a, it's a celebratory statement in the song we, we used to sing. Right. Um, but it's, I mean, that's another layer to the conversation. And there's also this incredible moment of hope. I don't remember the chapter number, but I believe it's Job's, his second reply to Bildad. So after Bildad's second speech, but it's the whole line of, um, I know my Redeemer lives. And it's basically mm-hmm. this hope in, I know that there is someone who will right this wrong. I know there is someone who will stand up for me. And it's it's really this, this pre- um, this pre-New Testament looking forward to Christ, which I think yeah. is really powerful. So Job exercises incredible, incredible faith, um, and Job is vindicated at the end. So I, all that to say, I don't want to bury Job in yeah. talking about this section. Um, but Elihu is pointing out a very real character flaw with Job, and that is that um, he seems to be more concerned with justifying himself than justifying yeah. God. And that's kind of what Elihu is getting at. So there's, there's this moment at the end when God... Um, vindicates Job, mm-hmm. and he also um, he condemns the three friends. And Elihu is not part of either of those, and that's what kind of makes it confusing because you would think like he would say, "Job, you you are righteous and good." Also, Elihu, good job. Yeah, and then right. you three, <laughs> but so you he doesn't. Are he doesn't do that, um, but he also doesn't say, "And you four. He says, "You three. So he's very clearly only condemning Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Mm-hmm. So that's where the controversy comes in with commentators. It's like, well. The the book doesn't really make it explicit whether or not Elihu is right. Yeah. So my my thought process really is Elihu's main point seems to be um, that Job is not thinking enough about God's perspective, and then God's answer to Job is essentially look at my perspective. Yeah, right. So he's saying, you know, the, the whole where were you? Uh, when, when I everything laid was the found- created, yeah, yeah, when I laid the foundations oh, of the earth, which is one of my favorite passages. Job is just great. Yeah, uh, the book. Um, well, in that and, passage, and I mean, the, God's response to Job right out the gate is, "Where were you?" Like that question is so deeply provoking mm-hmm. and challenging because it resonates and should resonate with all of us. Um, and I do, and I and I would agree with you, man. I think I land, I land in the boat that I think Elihu is the one of the four friends that's the mostly right. Um, I love the breakdown of the different friends and seeing the different perspectives and the different parts uh, of, of their arguments coming. Um, I'd never picked up on Zophar's um, being shut down by Job, which is, I think is awesome. Like, That's interesting. Um, but it is interesting to me that I think it shows the deep revelation of, of our own humanity in the midst of our sufferings and tragedy. The focus no longer becomes on what could God be doing. The focus becomes on what did I do to deserve this? Mm-hmm. And that's the tension. Even the righteous, I mean, Job was considered one of the most righteous individuals on the face of the earth at his time. I mean, even Satan, the Satan comes to, to God and says, hey, consider your servant Job. Or no, God says that first, consider my servant Job. Is right. th- There's no one more righteous than him. Um, and even the most righteous will face this challenge. And we have the luxury today of having scripture. We have the luxury today of seeing scripture in its entirety and being able to then process and be challenged by it. But I think the the argument presents a really challenging one for you and I today, even list those of you listening today, like where am I losing my focus and losing my recognition of who God is and where he sits and trusting him in the midst of whatever I face? Mm-hmm. I think that's the, that's, that's the beautiful tension for it. So there you go. Um, and I have this little section at the end that I think is just kind of helpful. So like, mm-hmm. what can we learn from the three friends? So with Eliphaz... Um, where do my best intentions lead me astray? Yeah. Is a great question, question to ask. Um, with Bildad, have I allowed myself to become so puffed up with the pride of knowledge that I don't care about wisdom? That's a really good question. Um, and then Zophar, 
Am I so concerned about being right that I forgot to love? Um, and then Elihu, I would say, is is the anger I feel from God. Yeah. So those are kind of the three Great questions, the four questions that we can kind of ask ourselves in, um, in different moments. Am I being these friends in in a bad way, or in Elihu's case, you know, I'm burning with anger. Is this actually a righteous anger that I that I should allow to kind of guide me, or is this just my human anger that I should yeah. that I should shut down? So, great, great question. Anywho, and that wraps it up for up. There's Job's friends. Yep, not for the episode, but for our discussion on Job's friends. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed it. So it was bit. fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I like anytime I can talk about Job. I I, I really enjoy. <laughs> Until he moves on to the next book, then we'll figure that out. Yeah, because this has been a year. Like this has been a year plus journey for you working through the Book of Job. Correct. Yeah, it's been. I I, I dropped off for a little bit, and then I kind of got. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, it was kind of like the re-shutdowns of COVID that kind of got me back onto it. I was like, oh, I should start reading again. And yeah. I just kind of like have been powering through. So Yeah. And it's fun. Like to, just to be honest, like when when I've been working through different books of the Bible, it, I, I looked forward to those times of reading scripture, which mm-hmm. I can't say that of another era of my life, to be honest with you. But being able to deep dive into something and work through the text and begin to understand it, especially hard principles or hard conversations, um, like what is this book actually about? Um, reading some of the major prophets, reading the book of Revelation, those are things that I went to school for, I learned overviews of, but to actually spend time in them is really, really good. So mm-hmm. I would say that's the only hard part about a reading the Bible in a year reading plan is that sometimes you don't get to spend time. Um, but then if you spend time, you have to have something to compliment and comment, have right. a commentary alongside. So well, I, think, I think it's just good. It's good to have both. I think reading the Bible Absolutely. Year gives you a great overview of, um, of the whole of scripture. Mm-hmm. And I think it's healthy to do that for seasons. And I also think it's healthy to like take a year and really drill down into a few books yeah. as opposed to kind of trying to do everything. Yeah. So. And at the Grove, like we're always about putting easy, obvious strategic steps for people to engage in God's word which is why we put out a reading plan every year. Um, and it's a read through the Bible in a year because at the end of the year, imagine for some people like, man, I read through the Bible this year. Like that's a big deal. So yep. um, that's why we do it. We'll always be putting out these kind of reading plans because we just value having a community of people, much like you listening with us uh, to read through the Bible together. So exactly. Shameless uh, plug. So before we move on to our Q&A portion, we just remind everyone to leave us a five-star review. Um, if this podcast has been helpful to you, much like Aaron. Yeah. No, well, so I told Evan, I said, I want to know who's leaving reviews. I want to know uh, who they are because I think it's important. Like this is a community of, of believers. We're all joining in together. Maybe you don't believe in Jesus yet. That's okay too, but we're all in this journey together. And so I just want to thank you to Lene Leary uh, for leaving us a five-star review. This is her comment. It says, Aaron and Evan are awesome. I think so too. Thank you. Shucks. Uh, but then it says, I love how they give biblical insight. Uh, and I just appreciate that. And so I just want to say thanks, Lene, for for leaving a five-star review, leaving us a, uh, even a, a message with that review because it helps us just con- continue to get better and we appreciate the, the love. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. The message are helpful whether you have um, positive or even negative things to say. Yeah. It's I was, also nice to know I, I was looking at it and I saw there was a one-star review. I was like, well, what'd they say? And we don't know. So don't know. Um, it's unfortunate. It's okay. Like, But we're not, a, we're not afraid of criticism either. So there you go. All right. So question one says, hi, guys. Hello, listener. Uh, quick, let's read the Bible question. In no, Matthew, it says quick LRT, hashtag LRTB. Quick which hashtag is, let's LRTB question. Uh, in Matthew 19, 18 through 19, why does Jesus neglect to highlight the love God and have no other gods with the lowercase g commandments when asked uh, which commandments should be kept? Um, so just to remind you, this is the story of the rich young ruler. Yeah. Uh, so I'll read it really quick. It says, and behold... A man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. Uh, If you would enter life, keep keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what uh, do I still lack? Jesus answered him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and then come and follow me. And the young man heard this. He went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. All right. So that's the passage. 
Well, he's asking, this is actually a good question. So when the young man says, you know, what must I do? What commandments must I keep? Uh, Jesus rattles off the Ten Commandments basically past the Sabbath, right? So he, And he doesn't talk about, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, you shall not worship idols, is mm-hmm. kind of the idea. So my thought, and I don't know if we line up, line up on this or not, um, is essentially because Jesus knew those are the ones that he struggles with. Um, and so not in the sense of, um, I don't think he struggles with idols in the way that we would we would view those necessarily in the Old Testament in the sense of like, he's not struggling to worship other lowercase g gods. But what he is allowing to have happen is he's allowing something to rule his life over God, and that's his money. Um, so maybe he doesn't worship Baal or Zeus mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever the temptation would be um, at the time. But I think Jesus clearly knows that there is one thing that he values above his relationship with God, and that is his possessions. And so when he tells him, like, you know, have you kept all of these? He knows the answer is going to be yes. Yeah. And then he saves the one that he knows the man hasn't kept for the end. Um, so that's my interpretation. Of yeah. It. No, I think, I think it's, I, I would agree with that to, to a point. Um, I've heard two different things. Actually, one that I was just thinking about as you were reading the passage. Uh, and the second is something I've heard previously to this. Um, but if you look at about it, even in the Ten Commandments, you see two different aspects of of the law. One is between God and man, and then the other is between man and man. Um, so when the Ten Commandments play out, you see some of them refer to our relationship with God, that vertical relationship, if you will, and then you see the relationship between man and man is that horizontal relationship. And one of the things that that Jesus addresses here is the the five of you should not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, honor your mother and father. Uh, some of these are are that horizontal relationship. They're how we treat each other, how we perceive each other, how we view each other. And so I've heard it say like the, the concern that Jesus brought to this, this rich young ruler's attention is his concern is not for fellow man as much as it is for himself. Right. Um, and so he's calling out in essence, this, the things that he does not uphold and he, he loves God. He, he, he serves God. He like, he has that aspect kind of nailed because he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm following these things through my religious practices, through my duty, through my responsibilities. Um, so I've heard it said that way, which I, I can kind of understand that. Um, and I don't, I don't say it's wrong or right. I just, that, that's an interesting layer to the conversation as well. Uh, but then as you're reading it, it's the statement is like, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Um, loving God is not a good deed. Um, like having no idols is not a good deed. Um, and so when I look at that, I, I kind of see that there, there's this tension a little bit. And even as I read it in uh, the CSB uh, translation as well, it says, what good must I do? which is referring to action. What do I need to do beyond loving God? Because as I almost view loving God is not a, an action or a deed in the sense of like, it's my good that gets me into heaven. Um, and so there could be that layer to it as well, where Jesus is addressing the actions of, of one's behavior, which reveals the actual depth of faith. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that there's that layer to it as well. Like Jesus doesn't hit the have no other gods and love God and, and all of that, um, partially because the way he's living his life is not totally in response and humility to the faith that he professes to have. Um, and he's focusing only on what he could do to inherit versus what's already been done for him to have salvation, if that makes sense. Right. And he doesn't know Jesus is going to die yet, but the, the truth of who Christ is, the truth of the gospel, those things are playing out, but he views everything as action-based, deed-driven in, in D-driven ways. Um, and so Jesus, I think, is kind of calling those things out too. So um, definitely, I think all of the above, I think there's a whole layer to this conversation where it hits the rich young ruler pretty hard, um, which is why I'm not sure, and you alluded to this in the in the previous spot um, about uh, when we were looking through the, uh, Job's friends, but this idea of um, Barnabas could be considered the rich young ruler here. I'm, I don't know. I see the rich young ruler as being someone who... Um, we don't hear from again because he, and so right. I'm not saying it can't be, but it's, it's interesting. I'd have to, we'd have to talk more about well, that. Well, there's really, there's really not evidence for it. It's just kind of like, I believe it's like some traditions in the early church held that that's who it was. Got so it. I believe is what it is. Got so. It. Okay. so anyways, all that to say, I think it is, it's indicative of God. Jesus understands what's going on in the heart of man, just like he's been proven to see in different moments, what is being thought in, in the crowds of people or the religious leaders so Jesus has shown that the, the, the gift of knowledge and insight, if you will. Um, and so it's very well can simply be, he knows what's going on. He knows the greatest weaknesses and he calls them out. Right. 
All right. So our final question, we're doing two this week. Um, and this one Aaron took the lead on. So you'll yeah, if this, the one, this one was actually emailed to me directly. Uh, so Steve, thank you for sending the question. And um, I know you may not be listening, but I'm going to send you the podcasting so you can listen. Uh, it says this, in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verses 32 to 36, I found a tough picture. Could you put this verse in context of how it was at that time uh, to stone a man for gathering sticks? I know it was the Sabbath, but still a hard saying. Uh, so I'm going to read the passage he's referring to, and then I'll share a few thoughts because I think context matters. It says this, uh, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses, Aaron, and the entire community. Uh, they placed him in custody because it had not been decided what should be done with him. Then the Lord said to Moses, this man is to be put to death. The entire community is to stone him outside the camp. So the entire community brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. It sounds like a very harsh punishment for someone gathering sticks. Uh, and in our modern day understanding of that, that's absolutely accurate. And I would even say in some biblical context, it's ac absolutely accurate. The chapter verse or chapter 15 of Numbers is actually talking about uh, the, the idea of sin and the sins of omission and the sins of commission. In other words, sins that we don't do on purpose and unintentionally, and then sins that we blatantly do in disregard um, and sins that we commit on purpose. And it says this in chapter in, in verses 30 to 31, which is where I say context matters. It says, the, but the person who acts defiantly, whether a native or resident alien, blasphemes the Lord, that person is to be cut off from his people. He will certainly be cut off because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his command. His guilt remains on him. Uh, and this is from the um, the uh, commentary, preaching the word commentary numbers, which the tagline there is the God's presence in the wilderness. And this is what they say. This is Kent Hughes who writes this. Um, and he says this, what follows these regulations is a case study in, in such a defiant premeditated sin. A man was gathering wood on a Sabbath day. This was actually a double sin. Not only was he gathering wood, it's was gathering the wood itself and therefore, uh, not only was gathering the wood itself work and therefore forbidden on the Lord's holy day, we see that from Exodus 35 two, but the only reason for gathering wood on the Sabbath would be in order to light a fire on the Sabbath, which is explicitly forbidden in Exodus chapter 35 verse three. So the man was committing one sin in order to be able to commit another, a defiant premeditated flaunting of God's commandments. And so the, well, the picture we see here is not that he's being punished to death because of picking up sticks. He's actually being punished to death because he's blatantly defying what God's law was established to be given. Uh, and so he blatantly disregarded what God established. God considers his, his law holy. He expects and desires holiness from his people, and he expects us to stay in obedience with his commands. And so that's the picture that we see in Numbers happening right now. Um, there's much more going on than a guy picking up sticks on, on a Sabbath day. Well, it is a theme just kind of of the whole um, Pentateuch and law that God takes holiness and obedience, obedience very seriously. Yes. So it's it's something that's really important for us to keep in mind as well. Um, but yeah, it is hard. Like the, that passage seems like, well, why is that punishment so much for something that seems so little? But at the end of the day, it, it is really to show us that sin is not little. Mm -hmm. um, even sin that we think, because we think of in, in, in the modern West, we're very conscious of sin against other people. Mm -hmm. So like the idea of murdering someone, well, we were like, okay, that's, that's wrong. That's, that's bad. Sinful. Don't do it. Right. And, or the idea of stealing from someone or defaming, like all of these things um, we're very conscious of, but we're not really conscious of um, sins that are almost directly against God. Because in this, in this instance, he's not wronging anyone around him. He's just sinning, sinning against yeah. God. Um, but that is also to be taken very yeah. seriously. Yep. So there you go. Uh, Good question. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Thank you. So with that, that wraps it up for this episode of Let's Read the Bible, um, just as a reminder, if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to uh, financially contribute to the ministry of the Grove Church, you can do that on our website, grove.church. There's a gift button in the upper right-hand corner, and we would really appreciate it. Um, and then finally, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we are not the only podcast of the Grove Church uh, or resource. Uh, you can find all of our other resources, including past messages and our new Life and Limb blog that just launched Ooh, on our website. Evan just wrote one. I did write one. Check yeah. it out. You so wrote last week's. Day will come again. Aure and Tulavar, as they say. Uh, <laughs> and so you can find all of those things at uh, grove.church. Have a great day. Thank you.